0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If
1: you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing you can't have
0: on the Savage Lovecast.
3: Welcome to the Savage Lovecast. I am not Dan Savage. I am Anna Marie Cox. I am the senior political correspondent for MTV News. I've been covering politics for over 20 years. I usually don't say that very much. I don't even like to think about it because in my heart I'm I'm not that old. I'm certainly not old enough to have been doing anything for 20 years. But I've been saying that a lot lately, and I've been thinking it a lot lately because I felt the need to impress upon others and on myself just how different this election is. Being a journalist means being a student of crowds. And as a journalist, I haven't just covered politics. I've covered other kinds of crowds as well. I've been at festivals and concerts. I've been at protests as both a protester and as a journalist. I've been in near riots, and I've been in mosh pits. I've been at Hillary Clinton rallies and Obama rallies and Bernie Sanders rallies. And now I've been to a Trump rally. And it is... Unlike any of those other things, it terrified me. And I know that's not news. I know a liberal journalist goes to Trump rally and is terrified," has been written over and over and over again by writers who are better than I am. So even when I left the rally, I, I didn't think I'd uncovered any news. It was in Green Bay, it was a couple weeks ago, and as Trump rallies go, it was actually pretty standard. It was not extraordinary. He did not call for an assassination. He did not say that Hillary Clinton could only win if in certain parts of the state there was cheating. He didn't ask for sheriffs and police to be present at polling stations. He didn't warn the crowd that no one knows where the refugees are, so keep an eye out, people. He just kept, you know, his standard bigotry and incitement to violence. Nothing happened at that Trump rally that hasn't been reported on before, but I was still unprepared for it. I was unprepared for just how gleeful and lusty the chants of lock her up were. I was unprepared for the way that sort of casual racism about refugees and immigrants bled into people also complaining to me about faggots and queers. I was unprepared for the man who told me that he lost his wife because of NAFTA. And I was even unprepared for this one moment that happens in every Trump rally that you've ever read about or that I've seen on TV, which is when he goes into his shtick about the media being biased and rigged and how they don't do their jobs and they're jerks or whatever. And what happens is everyone then in the crowd turns around and starts, you know, booing the press at the risers in the back of the room. So when this started, when this shtick part happened in Trump's speech, I knew what was coming. And then it happened. And I wasn't prepared for what it feels like when 3,000 people turn and start yelling at you. There's only about 30 or 40 press people there at any given time. And 3,000 isn't just a lot more than 30 in that moment, it feels infinitely more powerful than 30. I'm not going to say I was in fear for my physical well-being at that moment, but it did occur to me that in the 20 years I've been doing this, I've never felt that my life is in danger because of my job. Which means I've been privileged. There are a lot of reporters out there that put their lives on the line all the time but i've been covering american politics i haven't been covering wars or crime and i was terrified and i was terrified because of the job i was doing and that really hit home after the rally because you know everything had kind of emptied out and i was going around taking some pictures and i saw this guy in a trucker hat and an american flag t-shirt and he was holding a trump sign and he looked kind of lost, and I thought that would be like a great picture. That's America right there. And so I, I took a picture, and he saw me take it, and he marched up and got in my face and said, "Did you take my picture?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "You have no right to do that." And here was my first mistake. I said, "No, actually, I'm a journalist." And and uh, he interrupted me. He said, "Well, how would you feel if I took your picture?" And I second mistake here. I said or maybe the third, I mean, I shouldn't take his picture in the first place, but anyway, I I said, well, actually, you know, I'm in a public place. And he said, no, how would you feel if I followed you outside into the parking lot and took your picture? How would you feel if I followed you home? So I kind of stuttered. I I realized, you know, uh, this had gotten a little bit beyond whether (laughs) I had the right to take his picture. And I said, you know what, it doesn't matter how I would feel I clearly offended you and I'm sorry. And then he said, don't fucking condescend to me. And I, I just stuttered some more apologies and the tension went out of the moment and he walked away. And then this other guy who I'd seen out of the corner of my eye walked up to me and my heart started to pound a little, but he said, Oh, Oh, don't worry. I was just standing over there because I saw what was going on and I wanted you to know that I was going to step in if it got physical. Which, you know, I mean, thanks. <laughs> I thanked him. And he said, you know, I just didn't want you to get the wrong idea about Trump supporters. And I said, you know, I, I, I get that. And actually, I, I my in-laws are Trump supporters and I, I've talked to plenty of people here who... And I didn't specify, but I said, who aren't like that, but thank you. And then we started talking, and he was nice enough. He said, actually, that he wasn't a Trump supporter. He was, he was planning on, on voting for Gary Johnson, which left me wondering if maybe I had some reason to make some judgments about Trump supporters after all. And yet, I walked out of that rally thinking I had nothing new to say. In my professional opinion, as a journalist, I thought I had nothing to say, no reason to write up that rally, no piece of breaking news to report, and maybe that kind of terrifies me too. What I've come to believe since then, about a week ago, is that maybe we in the media need to stop looking at Trump rallies for news news in the way that we usually think about news, news in the vein of man bites dog. Instead, maybe we need to look at reporting on Trump rallies in an ongoing fashion, the way we cover terrorism versus the way we cover crime, or the way we should be covering climate change versus the way we cover the weather. Because much as with climate change, the Trump phenomenon developed slowly, Over time, fault of a lot of people, not just one. And much as with climate change, its roots are tangled and ugly. And we all probably bear some responsibility. And much as with climate change, avoiding an immediate catastrophe tomorrow does not mean we've changed course completely. I don't think Trump will win in November. Or rather, I don't think he will win the election. But he might win something. A victory that doesn't come with a specific office or title, but has tangible rewards nonetheless. A victory in normalizing hate, and allowing the worst part of ourselves to govern our actions. I worry that his talk of rigged elections and cheating and his calling out to the Second Amendment people and his desire for amateur poll watchers as well as police and sheriffs will lead to, oh, certain parts of certain states simply not accepting Hillary Clinton as president. I'm not sure what we can do about that. I know we can't wait until it's news. I know it begins with acknowledging that it's a possibility. I know it begins with covering Trump, not as a man in the news, but as someone who poses an ongoing threat. And on that note, coming up on the show, in today's Magnum version, Dan chats with the feminist pornographer Madison Young about making your own damn porn.
2: Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 25-year-old single gay man. I recently moved in a few months ago with some friends from college. Uh, they're both straight and aware of my gayness and very fine with me being gay. I live in one of the most open households, sexually at least, that I've had a pleasure of living in in the past. Uh, anyway, they're also both in, in relationships, uh, but one of them is in an open relationship, uh, but it's only physically open. So they do not open their relationship emotionally. I'm also fairly attracted to this guy. Uh, I have been since freshman year when I met him. Uh, and he knows this and is pretty receptive of it, but only makes it known when he's been drinking. Uh, he treats me like a normal friend when he's sober, but when he's been drinking, he gets really handsy and on a few occasions would definitely have had sex with me if I didn't feel uncomfortable with him being so drunk. Uh, his girlfriend thinks his heteroflexibility is really hot and totally aches us on to make out all the time, uh, but we haven't yet at this point. So as far as I know, he's only made out with a couple different guys, but never gone beyond that. Uh, I'm tempted to at least try it to see where it goes, but also terrified of how our normal friendly living relationship will be affected as a result. Uh, I also know his current relationship is emotionally exclusive, so I'm afraid of developing serious feelings for him if things did get physical. Just wondering how you think I should proceed.
0: Yeah, things could get dicey if you slept with this guy and caught feelings for him. And that could be weird and that could be fraught. But feelings can get weird and fraught with roommates, whether you fuck them or not. Things can get weird and fraught with people that you date and do give yourself permission to have an emotional connection, form an emotional connection with. My strategy, my recommendation here is to call his drunken bluff when he's sober, maybe when his girlfriend is around too, since she is the permission slip machine in this relationship and say, you know, when you're drunk, we make out and I'm uncomfortable because I don't want you to feel like I took advantage of you while you were inebriated. I don't want you doing anything drunk and disinhibited that you wouldn't allow yourself to do sober inhibited, but I would be down. I am into you physically. I would love to make this happen, when you're fucking sober and turning to the girlfriend with your permission, and then go for it. Enjoy, hot, sexy, reflexible roommates are there to be enjoyed.
4: Hi, Dan. A straight woman in New Orleans with a conundrum. Been long distance relationship with a guy that I had been seeing when I still lived in Los Angeles. Then I moved out here. Um, about four years ago, we've been doing the long-distance thing, and I Googled him. I you know, thought I did my due diligence, um, but apparently not good enough because I just downloaded an app and did some more snooping when I found a woman's name listed under the same address as his. And long story short, he is either married or a long-term partner with a kid, preteen kid. No mention of this. We've been talking about finally moving in together. And we have a trip planned to, hilariously, and that's Seattle in a couple of weeks. And I'm kind of perplexed as to what to do. Do I just bail on him? Do I call him, you know, whatever, put him on blast and say, what the fuck, motherfucker, you fucking liar? The funny thing is, if you'd have been honest about it, that this was just like a booty call, I'd probably have been fine with it. But now that I've known he's lying he's lied to me for five years, I'm pretty upset. So... You know, do I do I just not answer them, just ghost them? I I have no idea. I've never had this happen to me before. Is there etiquette? What is the etiquette?
0: I'm not sure what the etiquette here is, but I think this is a moment that calls for a song, a very particular song, a favorite of mine by two favorites of mine, Garfunkel and Oates, and they have a song called the ex boyfriend song. And this guy is going to be your ex boyfriend, or already is. I hope by the time you're hearing the sound of my voice, already is your ex-boyfriend. And I think in an instance like this, the only right and proper and etiquette thing to do is to call his number and play this into his phone seven or eight thousand times.
3: One, two, three, I fucking hate you, you fucking liar.
0: It's a short song, but it's a really good one It gets right to the fucking point. I think I speak for everyone when I say, we're curious what this app is that you use to... Find out that your boyfriend of four years, long distance boyfriend, has a wife and a child in another city? Secret second family-der? It's like Tinder or Grindr, but for straight men with secret second families. Could you let us know where we can all find this app? Maybe you could spare other folks years of futile effort, years of heartbreak after.
5: Hey, Dan. uh cisgendered straight male. My girlfriend is basically purely vanilla, doesn't really have any kinks, doesn't necessarily seem to inclined to explore new things. But, you know, I don't know. I've tried to push certain things and not push, but tried to, you know, uh, bring up certain things. She didn't necessarily seem like she was that into it. So, you yeah, know, whatever. Sex is great regardless. So that's okay. But um, I'm kind of into the idea of maybe trying a little, you know, anal. And she's always been adamant that uh, it's not going to happen. It's just not her... Uh, her butt's too small. She says it's not It's not going to fit, uh, et cetera. And I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. But just recently now, she's say been saying how she's perhaps interested in using a butt plug. And so now I'm thinking, okay, maybe this could be, you know, we could work up to it, you know, start off with this, and who knows where it'll go. Right? But um, I don't want to, like, have it be a bad experience. And then have it, you know, derail the entire possibility of uh, what could come. So, I was just hoping uh, to get your advice on perhaps like a really good butt plug to start with, like maybe like size or width or just what I don't really know too much about butt plugs or anything. I haven't really ever used them with a partner. So, um, yeah, any uh, input you have on like a good starter starter plug so that you know she can really maybe get into it. And enjoy it, and then we can, you know, evolve.
0: Joining me by phone to help field this one, Amory Jane. She's a traveling sex educator and the education coordinator and assistant manager at Shebop, the excellent sex positive feminist sex toy store in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Amory, how are you doing?
6: Hi, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Good. So this man has it in his head that a butt plug could sort of be like a gateway drug or a gateway plug to full anal intercourse and he doesn't want to fuck it up. <laughs> what is a good starter butt plug that isn't going to scare off his, obviously curious about anal, to some extent, female partner?
7: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, firstly, it's important um, for people to not necessarily think of butt plugs as a, as a gateway uh drug or plug. Um some people just want butt plugs and ending it there and not necessarily going on to full penis in ass sex. So they,
0: they can be an end unto themselves and an end unto yes, the end.
7: Exactly. But pun intended I guess um <laughs> a good starter plug, I think there are quite a few options out there obviously. Silicone tends to be the best for people who are beginning because it's more pliable, more flexible. Doesn't have as much weight as something like glass or steel. Mm -hmm. One of the really popular sets at our shop at Shebop are the fuse plugs. They come in small, medium, large, and extra large. So those are nice because people can start with the small plug. And then if their body gets used to that, they can kind of graduate and move up as they go.
0: So it comes in Um, one set, all four come together?
7: Um, You buy them separately, so you don't have to get them together. You could buy them together, but they are all sold individually.
0: I would encourage him to get them together so that he can use a butt plug on himself, maybe a little larger mm-hmm. than the one she's using, to demonstrate that anal pleasure isn't just something that she can experience, but it's something that he can experience too. Sometimes you got to be the change you want to see in your partner. And if you want her open to anal penetration, open yourself to anal penetration, sir.
7: Oh, for Sure. Definitely. Um, And there are some plugs that I think work really well as unisex plugs. Um, The Booty by Fun Factory is a really nice one. It's a little thick for some people who are beginners, but if they've used fingers, it should be fine with a good amount of lube. But what I like about that one is that it's really nice and curved. So it stays in well, can be worn during sex. You can walk around you know, playing Pokemon Go or whatever, wearing your butt plug. Um, But it's also really good for prostate stimulation as well because it does have that curve that can push into the prostate. So it could be good for for both partners in this situation. They could get matching ones in different colors.
0: (laughs) And all the toys we're talking about are available at Shebop's two brick-and-mortar locations in Portland, but also at Shebop's website, sheboptheshop.com. Any other recommendations in the beginner butt plug arena?
7: Well, steel is really nice. Um, Some people are a bit intimidated by steel because it's heavy. It doesn't let you forget that it's there. But some people like it for that reason. You can use it with any kind of lubricant. And because of the way the Enjoy pleasure plugs are tapered, they tend to insert real easily. Um, So some people do like the Enjoy pleasure plugs, and those are also in small, medium, large, and then an advanced size called the 2.0. So someone might want to start with the small for that too if they're not too intimidated by the steel.
0: And if you're at all concerned about porousness, which is a concern with some plugs, a stainless steel plug or a glass plug or a sterilizable one like a silicone plug are your best bets. But you can throw a stainless steel plug into the dishwasher and really get it clean if you're concerned.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do that with uh, medical-grade silicone plugs as well and with most glass plugs too as long as they're not art glass. Um, So yeah, they're really easy to clean. The main thing that people need to know is that if something's going in your butt, it's got to have a base. I'm sure you tell them this all the time, but it's got to have a flared base so it doesn't get stuck.
0: Exactly. Think of like, imagine a dude, like the entire rest of the dude is the flared base for his dick. You need a flared base for your butt plug as well. So you don't have to then rush to the emergency room to have something fished out of your butt. It's embarrassing. That'll put her off anal, having to go to the ER and have something fished out of her butt. So get one with a flared base. Always a good recommendation. Amory Jane, thank you for jumping on the phone. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. And again, it's SheBopTheShop.com where you can find all the toys we talked about. Thanks, Amory.
8: Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Hi, Dan. This is a 23-year-old cis woman living on the East Coast. And I have a question for you about terminology. Uh, So I have identified as queer since I was about 17 or 18 years old, but frankly, I don't have a lot of queer street cred insofar as most of my sexual experiences have been with men. I had some sexual experiences with a female friend in high school, but for her, you know, it was mostly about the performative element for men um, and for me it was also a very sort of confusing set of experiences that eventually led to my um, exploring queer identity more and uh, identifying myself as queer but I don't really know if it's appropriate or if it's appropriative for me to be identifying myself as queer in a public way if I'm not living a queer life. Um, I'm with a man now and have been with him for about five years. And um, though I've made it really clear that if we stay together in the long term, sex with women is going to need to be something that's available to me, we haven't really done anything to make that happen. So again, I'm I'm just curious as to your opinion. Like, is it irresponsible for me to identify myself as queer? Am I allowed to do this? Uh, It's become something that's very important to me, but I don't really know where I fall in the whole spectrum of public queerness and how I should manage that identity.
0: There are kids today who are coming out at 12, 13, 14 years old as lesbian, gay, bi, and nobody says to them, slow down there, newly out 12-year-old. If you can't point to all the dicks you've sucked and tell mom and dad and show them pics, how dare you claim to be gay or lesbian or bi? We don't say that to 12-year-olds who are coming out. Some people will say that to people like you who are bisexual, a part of the LGBT community, officially covered by the queer umbrella, who are in long-term, stable, opposite-sex relationships, maybe have never been in a same-sex relationship. but And people will say, how dare you identify as queer when you've never done the queer thing when you've never lived the queer life when you've never lunched on the same sex genitalia or whatever but we don't say that to the openly gay newly out 12 year old or the newly out 22 year old who happens to be a virgin we just take their fucking word for it oh you're lesbian gay boy, great welcome out but people will do this weird sort of resentful how dare you appropriative jujitsu bullshit to someone in your position and it's not fair and it's not okay with me that said and this is where i will get in trouble that said there are a lot of people out there who will round themselves up or down to straight down to straight or up to gay or lesbian because they've been in long-term either opposite sex relationships or same-sex relationships and it feels to them in that relationship and the way they've lived their life and are living their life for the foreseeable future that identifying, rounding down to straight, rounding up to gay or lesbian, gets closer to the lived truth, to their lived experience, to how they are perceived and wish to be perceived as they move through life. It would be great if more people were out about being bi. There would be less biphobia, less bi erasure, less less bi everything else. That's a problem if more bi people were out. And some people who are rounding down to straight or up to gay or lesbian are doing so because they are avoiding the judgment or the condemnation or the Prejudice that some bi people face, but others, some are doing it because it's closer to their truth, not because they're biphobic, not because they're running from that label, but because it is closer, you know, sexual identification, not sexual orientation is a three layer cake, the bottom layer, who you want to fuck the middle layer, who you are fucking the top layer, what you're going to tell people, the more neatly aligned your layers are, the less of a mess you're going to be closeted Republican Christian preacher Ted Haggard, his cake was a fucking mess. Your cake, if you want to identify as bi, not a mess. If you wanted to identify as straight, for now, in your relationship, not necessarily a mess. If you just wanted to passively allow yourself to be default identified as straight, not a mess. But you are entitled to identify yourself as queer. There is no controlling legal authority here. There is no LGBT Vatican council. That's going to come out with the LGBT catechism. You get to self-identify. You know who never wrings their hands going, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to identify in this way? Closet cases. Queer people like Ted Haggard who are messes who tell people that they're straight. They don't spend a lot of time wringing their hands wondering about whether they're allowed to apply the straight label themselves. The only people I ever hear wringing their hands wondering whether they're allowed to apply this label, label X to themselves, are people who are queer, who feel that other queers don't see them as queer enough to identify as queer. You are queer enough to identify as queer. If you are queer, if you are attracted to men and women and everybody at other other point along the gender spectrum, welcome to the LGBT community. Please be out about it. We need particularly more people in long-term stable even sexually exclusive opposite-sex relationships who happen to be bi to be out about it because that's where most of the bi people are or end up. And if all those bi people in those opposite-sex relationships wind up defaulting straight or feeling like they're not entitled to identify as queer, then most bi people end up closeted over the long term. And that ain't good. That ain't good for bi people. And that ain't good for the LGBT community because a large part of our membership gets erased is invisible is unseen unless they feel empowered to speak up and self-identify as queer you have my permission i am personally empowering you to self-identify and speak up and say that you are queer you may use that word i am vatican queer city and i have ruled
9: hey dan i'm a 23-year-old bi male my question is how did you deal with the negative emotions of growing up lgbt in a conservative Christian environment, I've dealt with it a bit on my own and I am out and proud to everybody that I know, but even within myself, I'm still experiencing these roadblocks. I have a guy coming over a little bit later this week and I'm really, really wanting to be able to be intimate with him and I don't know whether or not I can is there any advice that you can give me or any words that you can say that can help me to better parse this part of my experience? Because I'm coming up blank and I'm afraid that I'm just going to make a fool of myself.
0: Did we catch you before your date with this dude?
9: Uh, No, it just didn't work out.
0: Oh, so he came over and it didn't happen or he just didn't come over?
9: He just didn't come over. We're talking about it.
0: So, what's the problem? You say you have a roadblock, but I'm not, I didn't, couldn't quite get a handle on what you mean by that. Just you panic in the moment when it's dude on dude action,
9: or? I don't even know. I haven't had, I'm a virgin on all counts. I'm neither sexually active nor passive. So,
0: (laughs) so you're just inexperienced and nervous. Yeah, I just, and you got the religion coming in. And, uh, well, you know, straight people struggle with that too. That, yeah. Religion puts a bigger zap on our queer heads than it does on their darling little straight heads. But there are also people out there, I get calls all the time from people who have inhibitions, uh, even you know, people who saved it until marriage and got married and now it's dead. It's okay with Jesus if they fucking they're still having a hard time getting going because of the shame, because of the fear, because of the importance that they've attached to this thing that is in the grand scheme of things relatively mundane but totally pleasurable on the subject of this entire program every week. Right? Yeah totally. So it, it might it might help you to relax into your fear and your insecurity if you just look around and go, everyone else shares this struggle to some degree, not just me.
9: Okay. Oh that's great, yeah.
0: Now how can we how can we game out a date for you, a scenario, situation where you feel comfortable and empowered in the moment and not paralyzed by fear or shame. What do you need?
9: I just need words. I mean, (laughs) it may seem counterintuitive. It may seem cliche, but I just need to hear it.
0: I got words. I I got lots of words. I got nothing but words. All right. You need words of encouragement or you need to know what to say to some dude? Well,
9: just encouragement, kind of moving beyond this whole stifling of myself because i have barely, in the grand scheme of things, learning to accept myself and come out. I'm out to everybody I know.
0: That's great. You're so far ahead. There's so many people who are sexually active and not out, and that's the block, and that's that's the thing that's tormenting them is that they're living a lie, living a double life. They're not being authentic, their authentic selves, to use an oprah in the faces of their friends and family. And they wonder, you know, if they really knew me, would they still like me? And you are really known. Yeah. But inexperienced. And is it just a religion thing? Like, you're worried Jesus is going to barf if you put a dick in your mouth?
9: A little bit. But more on, it's just my own negative self-perception that comes from religion. And it feeds into that. And really, really bad self-esteem.
0: It helps if you can back way the fuck up and tell yourself that sex is 500 million years old. Yeah. Sexual reproduction, 500 million years old, half a billion years old. And it predates our existences. It predates the humans inventing any crazy fucking religion that popped to their minds. It predates everything. Sex made us and it'll unmake us. And if you look at human culture, human society, if you look at primates, you will see that sex does something for us that's not just about reproduction. And it's not just about Jesus. Sex plays a role in our lives around intimacy, release, comfort. It creates social bonds. And it's primarily for humans about pleasure, not about reproduction. It was about reproduction. We would go into heat like cats and deer and have sex only when – or like moose. We would have sex only when the female and only with a female was ovulating and only then to make a new moose or make a new cat or a new litter of cats. But Uh. we have hidden menses. We are always ready to go. People People are still horny and interested in sex, wired to be horny and interested in sex. Even with same-sex partners, even when they're no longer fertile, even when they're desperately trying to – they're fertile as hell, but they're desperately trying to avoid pregnancy. People are still going to want to do this thing. So what is this thing for? This thing is for pleasure. This thing is for connection. This thing is for intimacy. It's also for making babies every once in a fucking while. Once in a great moon, Rick Santorum and Karen Santorum have seven children. Presumably they had sex more than seven times.
9: That's not what I want to think
0: about. (laughs) Sorry to bring that up. Sorry to invoke that mental image, but...
9: I don't think I'm going to have sex for a long
0: time now, Dan. They're my go-to Catholic example when it comes to this. Sex is for procreation. No, no. Sex is for intimacy and connection. And every once in a great fucking while, it's for shitting out a baby. Yeah. So it can play the role in your life with your partners or partner that it plays in so many other people's lives. It's primary role in the lives of homo sapiens. Pleasure, intimacy, connection, asterisk, period, asterisk, occasionally for making a baby tube. <laughs> yeah. And it, it might help you in the moment. You know, that's just like the grand theory in practice. But in the moment with some dude coming over or if you meet some woman you want to get with, just to be honest about where you are. You're inexperienced, yeah. you're a virgin, you're a little nervous. It's more awkward to pretend you aren't those things for fear of them perceiving those things to be true than just to put that awkwardness on the table, just to acknowledge it. Like, I am I have no experience. This is going to be new for me. Some people will be turned off by that and run. You don't want to end up in bed with those people anyway. It's yeah. going to be a bad experience for you. Some people will be intrigued. Some people will be honored that they get to be your first or one of your firsts. Yeah. So just be honest, put it out there. Don't try to hide where you're at and who you are from the people that you want to get with. Be completely forthcoming without TMIing all over them.
9: Yeah, that that'll probably be I don't know if that'll be an issue or not. Be, I haven't been in the situation.
0: Be sexy about it. Like, hey, let's hang out, let's hook up, let's get together. And then when you do, when you see them, be like Just going to toss this out there. I'm really inexperienced. I'm really excited that you're here. But if I seem a little cultish or nervous, that's why. And you will be surprised. You will be surprised. By saying that out loud, so much of your anxiety and awkwardness will dissipate. Because so much of our anxiety and awkwardness in a situation like that is this overarching, usually subconscious fear that we will be perceived to be awkward or anxious. And if you just say, I might be awkward or anxious... A lot of what you're being awkward and anxious about evaporates.
9: Yeah. Kind of nip that self fulfilling prophecy in the bud.
0: Right. Another benefit to being forthcoming about this with people is you might get the same back. I'm nervous, inexperienced. They might say, oh my God, me too.
9: I'm like, oh, we have something in common.
0: You have that in common. You can both relax around each other. And it'll also help. One last bit of advice where I go masturbation is sex. You can masturbate together. You can roll around. You don't have to go for the brass ring or the ass ring. You don't have to go straight to butt fucking the first time you get with a dude. Mutual masturbation, oral, rolling around. Be Boy Scouts together the first time. And then work up to varsity level intercourse, whether you're with a a woman or a man. Take it slow, baby steps, and enjoy the exploration. Enjoy exploring.
9: Oh, thanks, Dan. You've really uh, helped us face some of my concerns. Good
0: luck, dude.
1: Hi, Dan. Straight white guy on the West Coast with a question about pegging. So I've experimented with butt play on my own and have enjoyed it. But I think part of what I really want to actually get out of that sort of thing is not being in control necessarily of the penetration. And um, I'm married to a woman, obviously. I'm incredibly straight. I have no interest in actually having a, a real dick in my ass. But I can't even imagine asking my wife to do this for me. So I guess maybe what I'm asking for is how to approach my straight, fairly vanilla, pretty sort of fragile wife with the prospect of strapping on something and putting it up my ass.
0: You just have to ask. You have to risk asking. There's no half asking this. There's no 50% strap on a dildo and 50% fuck my ass. You're either all in or you ain't. You're either asking or you're not. There is a way to approach this indirectly. If you guys haven't watched all three or four seasons now of Broad City on Comedy Central, you should start watching Broad City on Comedy Central because it is amazing and it is hilarious. And episode four of season two features a pegging, a straight guy, without any hesitation or shame, just tosses it out there that this is something that he enjoys and the girl's... Abby and a lot of, they game it out and they make it happen. And you could watch that with the wife and laugh and gauge her reaction. If You want to be a coward, you can gauge her reaction and then say that you're intrigued. Say that that's something that might be fun for you guys to try. Ask her if there's any kinks or things she's ever wanted to do herself. Ask her what she thinks of pegging, what she thinks of a woman doing a dude in the butt with a strap on dildo with Broad City, episode four, season two, as your excuse, as your cover, then, if it goes badly. If the wife freaks out, you can beat a hasty retreat. You can put your towel between your legs with your toys and run screaming. Or you can just man up and ask.
10: Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female living in Southern California. I was diagnosed with HIV in the spring of 92 when I was nine months old. And I'm also a virgin. <laughs> there are many things that have led me to being 25 and still a virgin. I've not had a lot of luck with dating, particularly because I tend to hold myself back. I have a fear of being rejected on the basis of being HIV positive positive being judged for something I cannot change or control. So I've never actually gotten to the point in a dating relationship where I might tell a guy. I usually have one, maybe two dates before the guy or I lose interest. Lately, I've been feeling very lonely and (laughs) very horny. uh, And I don't know how to jump into the dating pool successfully. I'd also like to get over my irrational fear of rejection. I would really appreciate any advice you might have for my crazy predicament.
0: There are online dating websites for people who have HIV. Pause magazine has a personals website, and there are straight people there. And there's Positive Singles, which I found just by Googling dating with HIV or other sexually transmitted infections. So you have places that you can go, at least to get your feet wet, where the ground is level and everybody's in the same boat, where you can be open in your ad about being HIV positive. Talk to other people who may also have HIV or other people who don't regard HIV as necessarily, particularly at this time and in this day, as a deal breaker or a reason not to be or get with someone. I got to say though that your fear of being rejected has led you to reject yourself at every turn because you fear someone rejecting you for being HIV positive. This thing you have no control over, you reject every guy out of hand. You reject them before they can reject you. You don't know even that pile of guys that you've rejected because your anxiety gets the better of you after one or two dates. You don't know if there was a guy in that pile who knew enough about HIV not to freak out, who knew enough about HIV to know. That if you're in treatment and there's no such thing as a 25-year survivor who is not successfully treating themselves, that you have a zero viral load, that you are effectively uninfectious, you couldn't infect them, that it is much more difficult for the virus to pass from the woman to the man than the man to the woman. So that they have that added layer of protection. Toss in a condom and some common sense, an even greater degree of protection. It really – For a smart guy, for a guy who isn't ignorant about HIV, for a guy who might be ignorant about HIV but likes you enough to go and learn about HIV, this should really be a non-issue. But you're going to have to, like somebody coming out of the closet who's gay, you're going to have to reach a point where the place you are now is less pleasant, is scarier to stay there than the rejection you may encounter coming out of that place, that The loneliness and deprivation that you're experiencing now that you are partly the author of is creating more misery for you than the misery of facing rejection from some dude that you're dating who can't handle it. You got to get through those rejections from the dudes who can't handle it to find the dudes in that pile of guys you're dating who can handle it. But if you're rejecting them all out of hand for fear that they might reject you, you have bank shot, rejected yourself. Stop doing that. Trust the people that you're dating to be open with them. Don't fear being known to be HIV positive. That's part of it too. You can't tell people that you've been on one and two dates with that you're HIV positive if you're terrified of other people perhaps potentially finding that out. So work through that. Love and accept yourself. Join a support group for people with HIV for online or not online, find other people who were infected early in life as you were, who may have some experience that they can share with you about how to manage dating and disclosing this fact about yourself. But stop rejecting yourself for fear of being rejected by others. Stop doing the dirty work of meeting out these rejections for these guys who might not reject you. Some of them will. Absolutely. Some of them will reject you, but some of everybody is going to reject some of everybody for whatever reason. It will be particularly painful. I know for you to be rejected on these grounds because you've struggled with this all your life. And I'm sure it feels so unfair that this burden was laid on you the way that it was. Everybody who's HIV positive, that is a burden laid on everyone unfairly through some trick of the cosmos or trick of fate. But, love and accept yourself, be out, be em- feel empowered. And you will find the guys who aren't paralyzed by fear or who are attracted to you enough to surmount that fear, to overcome that fear so that they can be with you and be intimate with you. And to be 25 and HIV positive in 2016 with the drug cocktails that keep you healthy and alive and your viral load undetectable and PrEP, if you do end up in a long-term relationship prep that will effectively protect your partner from HIV infection, no better time to be an HIV positive person in the West with access to these drugs, with access to doctors than right now. Get out there and live.
11: Hi, Dan. I'm a 45-year-old guy in Toronto. Recently, my husband revealed to me a fetish of his that involves wearing a particular piece of clothing. I was Taken by surprise by it, but I think I responded well. Uh, he seemed relieved after he told me, and he seems comfortable enough to wear it around the house once in a while or wear it to bed on occasion. I really want to be G about it. I want to understand, though, what that implies. Does it mean that I need to, I should share the same interest in it, or because uh, I... I don't. I've tried to better understand it or better appreciate his attraction to it, but I I don't share that attraction. Or does being GGG just mean that I'm open to playing with him revolving around this item, which I have, I guess I've worn it for him once and I've also initiated some sexy time with him wearing it. But again, it does nothing for me. Um, Maybe I'm focusing on being GGG too much and just should be focused on his happiness. But if so, at what point, or do I even entertain the thought of him finding compatible playmates? Or do I just uh, continue playing with him, just focusing on his happiness?
0: So we all just listened to your question and we're all dying to know what kind of clothing are we to like ruffled Elizabethan collars? Like what are we talking about?
12: Uh, nothing that is driving it. It's um, actually diapers.
0: Oh, okay. So yeah, that is something that I don't think GGG obligates you to get into or necessarily wear. Cause that's, that's a kink that, it's not like wear leather it's not like wear even pantyhose it's like a kink that for a lot of people trips a kind of association obviously with babies with childhood. And that's for most people a circuit breaker that prevents any erotization, any uh, erotic response at all, which is not to say people who respond to it erotically are fetishizing infants or children. When you talk to people who are diaper lovers, what you get from them and what they say, and I believe them, is that it's about comfort sometimes it's about submission or uh, humiliation but it's often about that feeling of security and comfort it's not about desiring being a baby necessarily or desiring babies themselves or little children
12: i agree his comments have been about uh the comfort uh and the sensation he hasn't uh he says he's not at all about adult baby he doesn't he doesn't uh, even like diapers that have sort of like childish prints on them. Mm-hmm. So it, that's definitely not his scene.
0: Well, I think you're doing everything right. I think you should communicate with him about his feelings. I hope you can acknowledge that, you know, it's this is a tall order for a lot of people. And most people's partners, if this wasn't disclosed in advance, aren't really ever going to get there when it comes to something like diapers. And that you making some space in your marriage and your lives together for him to do this for him to indulge himself in this and that you can allow for that and create some space that where you're not judging him or shaming him. You have a problem with him wearing diapers. That's, that's great. That's a lot. And I think he should be grateful to you for that. Particularly if you also add to that mix, if you can find others who share your passion for this, that you can really purve out with for lack of a better word and be with somebody every once in a while, hang out with somebody every once in a while, maybe not, you know, you guys have to have a negotiation around what's permissible with other people erotically or sexually, but to be with somebody every once in a while who you can really engage with about your, your passion for diapers and how they make you feel. And you can share that with somebody. It's like going bowling with somebody who hates bowling, but will go bowling with you to get you off their back about bowling versus occasionally going bowling with somebody who fucking loves to bowl. Right. And you don't want to deprive him of the experience of getting to bowl or getting to bowl every once in a while with somebody who loves to bowl as much as he loves to bowl.
12: Exactly, and I've even looked out online for not support groups—not the right word, but like partners of affinity people groups. Who, there we go. Thank you. Uh, that I can sort of get some other perspective on because I really do want it to support him,
0: and that comes across, and that's clear. But somebody who is the relatively or comparatively vanilla partner of a more serious kingster can be supportive and can be GGG and indulgent without having to feign an interest in the kink themselves or even engage in it at all. If it's a libido killer or a circuit breaker, kind of a deal.
12: It's not a a total libido killer, like thinking about like my mother kind of thing, (laughs) but I do, I, I definitely see his reaction to when I do partake and, That in itself helps me, even though what I'm actually kind of doing, like I said, does nothing for me otherwise.
0: Well, how common is that? I don't enjoy giving head. I'm not (laughs) saying I don't, but like you do hear from people sometimes, I don't really enjoy sucking dick, but I really take pleasure in how aroused my partner gets when I suck dick or whatever it is. I don't really like to be tied up, but my partner gets so excited when I let him tie me up that the sex is awesome. And so that can, over the long term, create an association for somebody who wasn't kinky with, you know, positive reinforcement with the kink and the other pleasure. And so it can come to symbolize that if you give it space. And that's another part of GGG. And and, and I do recommend this. You know, my partner says he's a foot fetishist. What do I do? Let him lick your feet. How hard is that? that? That's setting the bar so low as far as I'm concerned. He just wants to get off on my feet. He wants to lick my feet. Like, let him lick your fucking feet. Lay back and enjoy it. Allow for that. Sure. And I you know, I think diapers are in a different place because of that circuit breaker quality for some people around that kink. But if you don't have that problem and you don't have that association, it doesn't goob you out or throw you into some sort of weird headspace around Viral, yeah. infants or children. And you're able to just tap into it as he takes so much pleasure in this that I'm taking pleasure in his pleasure. You should go there and you should do that. But if you're worried he's not getting enough from you, if you're worried the accommodations and the room you've made in your life together with him for this thing isn't big enough to accommodate all of it, if you're worried that he's chafing, (laughs) oh my God, I didn't use that word on purpose, but there we go. If you're worried he's (laughs) chafing against these limitations, talk to him and, and let him know that you're open to finding more places in either your life together or, some autonomous space in his own life separate from you where he can do this. Not with others exclusively because you don't want to hear about it because it icks you out and you don't want to ever have to think about it anymore, but because you're so concerned for his pleasure. And this is so important to him that you want to make sure that there's enough of this in his life. That's so loving and lovely of you to have that impulse, but you, you, you called the wrong faggot. You should be talking to your partner, not me. Okay,
12: fair. I, I guess also what kind of disappointed myself in this is through this, I always consider myself pretty being pretty open-minded and progressive, but I, it just made me realize how vanilla I really am.
0: <laughs> there are two kinds of people you meet at big kink events, whether they're adult baby things, whether they're pup play parties, whether you're IML... Thunder in the Mountains, whatever. Everywhere you go to these kinds of big public kink events, including like straight swing scenes, straight kink parties, you meet two kinds of people. The kinkster, the person who was always into this, the person who was tying himself up when he was 13 years old, and the person who fell in love with that person. Who now is into it too. Who grew into it. Who fell in love with the kink because they fell in love with the kinkster. So don't feel like you're not interesting sexually. Some of us are out there to be the person who fell in love with the kinkster, and that's how we got our kinks. Some of us.
12: Okay, I I, I appreciate your perspective.
0: Good luck, and how lucky your how lucky your partner is to have you. How lucky your partner is to have to disclosed this particular kink to a person as compassionate, loving, and open as you clearly are. Thanks, Dan.
3: Hi,
13: Dan. I'm a BDSM educator on the West Coast. I wrote the only book on rope bottoming, AKA getting tied up. I teach classes on it. I make free educational videos about it. I love it. Now, up until now, I've led a completely double life. I do everything kinky under my C name and I don't show my face on social media sites. And the reason I haven't come out about it has to do mostly with a lack of courage. I grew up in a repressed Catholic household conservative community. I don't live there anymore. But lately, I've started to feel a bit braver, and I'd like to be able to live more openly. The issue is, I'm also a single mom to a 10-year-old. Now, do I have the right to expose her to possibly negative judgment by her friends or her friend's parents for something that she didn't choose, and that has nothing to do with her? I mean, society has made some big strides um, in terms of accepting non-traditional lifestyles, but you know, being a hardcore bondage lover still has a long way to go, I think. And I don't think she's old enough yet for me to even talk to her about BDSM and give her the tools to defend herself against people who judge it negatively. Or she might not even know why she doesn't get invited to a friend's house, or why she gets excluded from a birthday party, let's say. So what's the best way to handle this that takes into consideration both her right to not be judged for my choices and my right to live
0: my life more openly. So if I follow, you're worrying about something that actually hasn't come to pass yet. That if it were to get out there that you are a BDSM sex educator, that you literally wrote the book on bondage bottoming, that your daughter might not get invited to certain birthday parties. And that is a real risk. Children who have porn star parents or sex worker parents, or even parents who are... I've heard from people who are tattoo artists whose kids haven't been invited to birthday parties because this assumption that people make, this association people make between being a tattoo artist and being dangerous or edgy. The trick is, I think, to try to maintain this distance for your child, to try to protect her from the blowback that could be coming your way, but also to look at where you live. If you're going to have a career that's built around – BDSM and being a BDSM educator, and there is this built-in risk for you over the course of your life of exposure, and that would have consequences potentially socially for your daughter, move to a place where that is going to be less of a deal. If you are living in a suburb outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and doing all of this, the blowback for your daughter, the social cost that she would pay if this all came tumbling out of your closet when she was 11 or 12 or 13 years old could be huge. If you were living in San Francisco or Oakland or Portland or Seattle, probably less of a problem. If you were living in Chicago in the city, not the fucking suburbs, probably less of a problem. You have a kind of alternative ish career. Get to a place where there are more people working in that same space or more people who have alternative-ish careers themselves so that if and when it should ever come out, it isn't going to nuke your daughter's social life. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with Madison Young. She's an author, feminist, pornographer, sex educator, and mom who has two books that have come out this summer, The Ultimate Guide to Sex Through Pregnancy and Motherhood and the book I want to talk with her about today, The DIY Porn Handbook, Documenting Our Own Sexual Revolution. Hey, Madison, thanks for jumping on the phone. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you to write this book?
6: Well, I have been teaching DIY porn classes, um, I think since 2007, um, and making feminist pornography since 2005. Um, And I feel like, porn is such a really incredible, powerful, artistic medium, and it has the ability to really create social change and uh, change the way that we think about and talk about and communicate about sex. I really feel like it's so important to give people the skills, and um, uh, this book will hopefully help uh shift some perspectives as well around what pornography is and what it can be
0: so i've i've often uh advised people to go out there and look for feminist porn people who are conflicted about their taste in porn or their porn consumption habits may be creating demand for porn that's not produced in an ethical way or that's anti-feminist how do you know if you're watching feminist porn or not and where do you find it
6: Hmm. Such a good question. I, I often often get that question. I I feel like <clears throat> for for feminist porn there are are not necessarily um, the same signifiers that you will see in each film because feminist porn um, really holds space. For um, individual expression of sexual desire, and I say that we're we're all sexual snowflakes. We're all completely different. So mm-hmm. um, you might watch one feminist porn and there's really wild, rough sex happening, um, and another one is very sensual um, because people are expressing themselves. In a, in a different way.
0: But how do you, um, how do you but, figure out, like, if you want to watch rough sex and you want to watch rough sex that was produced ethically, that's the people there were enjoying it, it was about self expression. How do you know which is which? We need some sort of feminist right. porn, good housekeeping <laughs> stamp of approval on the videos or something, some right. sort of watermark <laughs> that people can earn so people are more comfortable. Uh, or they know they've stumbled across it. Usually my advice is to go read feminist bloggers who blog about porn and blog about sex, Tristan Taramino, Violet Blue, because that's a good entry point. But if people are just cruising around on the bots or pardon me, cruising around on the tubes and the hubs, the porn tubes, the porn hubs, (laughs) what would your advice for them be? How can they sift? Well,
6: I, I usually, um, direct people to the feminist porn Awards. um, which is feministpornawards.com And um, they have been um, uh, doing a, a Feminist Porn awards show for the last 10 years and have a, a really uh, wonderful um, uh, canon of different directors and filmmakers from around the globe um, on that site who have either been nominated or awarded Feminist Porn Awards. Um, so I feel like that is a a great place to learn about different feminist porn directors. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and yeah, doing, doing some research in this book as well. I have a a really large, um, resource of different performers and directors and filmmakers that are, um, feminist porn. So why would,
0: why would people want to DIY their porn? Um, there's so much porn out there. I know that if I was mm-hmm. gonna go watch some porn, I wouldn't want to watch me in it because I can look in the mirror whenever I want, <laughs> and I'm not particularly interested in watching myself do it. It's like when you go out to dinner; you don't want to go out and have food that you might be able to cook. You want to go out and have food that somebody's a much better cook than you are made for you. <laughs> so, so what's in DIY porn for the the person who's gonna make it?
6: Well, I think that um, many people who who do enjoy porn um, want to see themselves represented. Um, uh, or they see that there's something lacking within porn. Mm-hmm. Um, they they might not um, see themselves being represented um, in those films um, or they're inspired. They're like, this thing gets me really hot, but I just can't find it out there. Or there's this story that, you know, is topics of sexuality and sex that they're really interested in. Um, and i I think that uh, it's a, a great way to communicate about those different topics of sex and to create representation.
0: If there's something that turns you on and you can't find it out there, you should create it and add it to the great porn library at Alexandria that is the internet, that it's on you.
6: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you you can't expect someone else to do it for you. I, I think that if you don't see it out there, then picking up the camera And creating it yourself is a a great way of doing it. Maybe you're in it, maybe you're not. Really, some of my favorite porns are porn films that I'm in. So (laughs) I I feel like it's a a pretty fabulous gift for for me to be able to um, have a fantasy and whatever that fantasy is, live it out, document it, and then watch it as many times as I want
0: to. You said... Um, you said that porn can uh, create social change and social change can be positive or negative. Right. Uh, there are many people say there, there's a downside to a lot of pornography and a lot of w- the ways in which young people are exposed to it early. There isn't a counter narrative in it uh, or embedded in, it in mm-hmm. porn. And it can seem prescriptive that these are the things not only that you're going to be expected to do, but you must want to do and people arrive sometimes at sex now trying to act like the porn stars that they aren't and trying to have a kind of pornified sex life that is a misrepresentation of most people's desires and the sex lives that most people have. How can we make porn be more of a force for positive social change?
6: Well, I think really thinking about um, sex positivity and the things that we would like to see in our sexual culture and including... Um, those conversations and those elements within the films that we're creating. So um, for me, um, including negotiation um, and a lot of communication amongst um, sex partners, not just that they're in the middle of a a sex scene, um, but really showing how they got there and the desire behind it and, um, and the negotiation that goes into it. Um,
0: and if you show people asking for what they want, you may not want the same exactly. things, but you'll have a model of how to ask for the things that you may want, as opposed to just right. Like you you to can want what see that
6: want. it's actually yeah. You can see that it's actually sexy to ask for what you want, or to even um, uh, say, "Oh, you know, I, I really love it when you're going down on me, but if you would just stick your fucking fist in me and like really <laughs> fuck me hard." that would be really swell too. You know, you can, we're, we're asking for more lube showing that there is lube on set. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, safer sex supplies
8: as well. And, and gloves, sh- and, condoms. Sh-
0: and showing that incorporating those things doesn't have to be an interruption, but it's part of the sex.
8: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So
6: I think that it's a, a great way to model, um, healthy, um, sexual connection and and behavior. Um, because it's really the the only place, the only art form in which we see graphic sex, um uh for for us to, to look to. Um so one as last, a model.
0: One last question. You're a professional pornographer and you done porn professionally. There's so much porn out there now, including so much amateur porn. Are you worried that if there's a DIY porn revolution and everybody's creating their own DIY porn and putting it up online after reading your DIY porn handbook documenting our own sexual revolution, that there'll be less and less money in porn for the professionals? And we're kind of perhaps the fact that everyone's carrying around a porn production studio in their pockets in the form of their iPhones these days, we're destroying porn as an industry that can employ people where people can make a living, pay the rent.
6: Yes. I mean, I think that there's a a lot changing um, commercially around pornography right now. The DIY porn handbook is, is much more around, um, I, I say that it's 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 not a ticket to becoming rich or mm-hmm. to it's not really about um, uh, how to generate a large amount of money um, making porn um, or to establish a large business making porn, <clears throat> but it's it's more looking at porn as um, an art form. So just as an artist doesn't necessarily start painting in order to, um, make a lot of money, but to make a statement, um, uh, the DIY porn handbook. And I think DIY porn in general is more of an an activist movement, Mm um, and, and less focused on, um, commercial, commercial gain.
0: And it's also something that says to people, porn isn't necessarily passive, That this is something that you can do By yourself, for yourself, with your friends, with your lovers, that you can create this, not just consume it.
7: Right, and that's what
0: I really liked about. And
6: I think, and and I love, I I love that that now, like we do, see a really a decline in um um in, in the economics around commercial porn right now, and I think it's making room for a lot more DIY porn and feminist porn and trans porn and and a lot of. Um, alternative ways of screening porn, getting out of the house, going to film festivals like Hump. And, um, thank, you know, you and other- <laughs> thank you for mentioning it. Thank you for saving me. <laughs> like, I, I greatly enjoy. I greatly enjoy.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad, um, I'm glad you enjoy my it. My
6: partner actually uh, went out to the Roxy and, and uh, saw the the hump uh film festival in san francisco it was nice to have a date night and not be on and just be kind of <laughs> like in the back as you know just having a regular date watching other people
0: well, the certainly screen, so. anybody out there thinking about entering hump and making a film for hump this year getting your hands on the diy porn handbook would be a great place to start if you want to make a yeah. good and sexy film there's a lot of advice in here that uh, is terrific for wannabe humpers. And I, 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 I endorsed the book and I recommend it. Madison Young, sex educator, author, feminist, pornographer, and mom, two books out this summer, The Ultimate Guide to Sex Through Pregnancy and Motherhood. And the book we're talking about today, the DIY Porn Handbook, Documenting Our Own Sexual Revolution. Madison Young, thank you so much for jumping on the phone.
6: Thank you so much for
8: having me. Have a great day. You too. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because my husband and I are interested in exploring more of the BDSM world, but we are really not sure how to go about that. Going online and just Googling it is really not helpful, and so if there are any websites, any apps, anything that you would recommend for us to to, to go to, that would really be appreciated.
0: There are tons of websites out there. Just start Googling and dinking around until you find the ones that click for you, the ones with lots of good information. But what I really think you need to do is get your hands on a book and a particular book, Playing Well with Others, Your Field Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities by Lee Harrington and Molina Williams. It is terrific. It will put your mind at ease. It will walk you through munches and play parties and gear and different kinds of kink scenarios and different kinds of BDSM play can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's where you should start playing well with others by Lee Harrington and Molina Williams.
10: Hi, Dan. Here's the deal. I have a 12 year old daughter and she started middle school last year. And as you can imagine, it's the age where a lot of questions about sex start coming up i am tried to answer questions about the basics as honest as I can. I love your podcast. I'm trying to be open and honest and whatever. Um, but if you can imagine, I'm sure at the middle school, she's hearing all kinds of stuff beyond the basics. And she, she has a lot of questions and I can tell she has more um, and she doesn't know how to ask. And what I really wish I could do is just have her listen to your podcast with me. Um, but I wonder, is 12 too young? So, but I love the way you approach things. It's such a you know, healthy and open way to think about um, sex and sexuality. So I wanted to ask you, as a dad, you know, do you think 12 is too young to listen to your podcast?
0: I do think 12 is too young. And I say that despite having met people who are 17, 18, 19 years old, who have told me they started listening to the podcast when they were 12 or 13 years old, and they don't seem to have been harmed by it. But maybe the Savage Lovecast is the sort of thing that you should allow your daughter to discover on her own out there on the internet rather than pointing her toward. At that age, I think – and I've heard from people who have kids who are 15 or 16 who have pointed them at the podcast and I think that's good. I think we turn through a lot of good and very helpful information here on the Savage Lovecast. But I think 12 might be just a little too young and I say that – Knowing that your daughter has probably already been exposed to internet pornography and some of what we talk about on here is a good corrective for that kind of early exposure and the distortions it can create. But, and maybe it's just because I'm so old and maybe it's just because I am a parent of someone who was very recently 12. I do think 12 is just a little young. Kick that can down the road a couple of years, mom. That would be my advice.
14: Hi, Dan. I was calling in response to the young lady whose mother died from episode 511. I lost my mom when I was very young and I've had, I don't know, about 28 years um, to process it. And there are still days when, like you said, um, it catches me the right place at the right time and tears will start coming and it's rather inconvenient. Um, but in regards to her challenge with friends not being open for discussion, You know, there's different types of friends. There's good time friends. There's outdoor activity friends. There's sit and read book friends. There's philosophical friends. And then there's some friends that you can talk about that kind of thing with. And it's not for everyone. I've found that unless someone has experienced a close loss on their own, they just can't quite empathize. And so you expressing your sorrow or being upset three and four years later to them doesn't make sense because they've never been upset about anything for three or four or 10 or 15 years. Probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them is the day they broke their nail or wrecked their car, et cetera. Finding people who've experienced a similar loss can be very cathartic and talking with them as they will actually be able to empathize. Um, for your caller, I'd recommend her hunting for, there's a couple of different groups online. Um, a good example is Motherless Daughters. I think you can actually find them on Facebook. You'll find a lot of people who've had a, a similar challenge and can understand what you're going through and are more than happy to lend a listening ear. I know my own experience, there are days when I need someone to listen. And also, as a result, I really enjoy listening to other people, hearing their story, sharing their experience. And, you know, I learn how to deal with my own loss while listening to their loss and helping them deal with it as well. So chin up, it's hard. It never gets easy, but it gets less painful, less frequently with time.
15: Hi, I'm calling in response to the young woman in episode 511 who called in about whether to stay with her fiance. Listen, love, Dan is right. You know he is. You cannot go back to this young man. What he did was not borderline abusive. It was abusive. The abuse of abusers escalates over time. If you were to go back to him, it would not be the last time you would have to deal with this. And it would only get worse and more frequent and potentially escalate into physical violence. What you described on your call, the impulsive act of throwing the, the ring out of the window and calling you demeaning, violent names in a fit of rage, followed by a sincere apology is textbook abuser protocol. They break you down and they build you back up. And, al- and also I have to say that your rationalizing of his behavior is also pretty standard for people who are abused by their partners You said in your call that you felt that his actions were borderline abusive, and in the very next breath, a giant red flag came flying out of your mouth, but I love him. When those four words are trailing at the end of a description of unacceptable behavior, it means that the situation requires significant and honest reflection, at the very least. You can love him, but you cannot stay with him. You know that you can't stay. I can hear it in your voice. You are a strong and smart woman. Listen to Dan. Listen to me. Listen to yourself and run, run, run.
6: Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 511 to the guy who has a girlfriend with a little bit of a drinking problem. Um, I was that girl three years ago. I was in the perfect relationship, but sometimes I drink too much, and a lot of that stems from my uh, career, which was also teaching. My advice for the caller is do what Dan said, um, confront her about it, have some consequences, but at the end of the day, if she's still drinking too much and causing these issues, dump her. My boyfriend did that to me, and it's something I've regretted ever since but it also was a big wake up call for me and it helped me get my drinking under control and i think i've been a better person since then
0: and we're going to leave it there 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast if you want to record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 206-302-2064 follow me on twitter at Dan savage Follow Madison Young on Twitter at Madison Young. Follow Sheepop the Shop on Twitter at Sheepop the Shop. And a big thank you to Anna Marie Cox for the top of the show rant this week. She does the podcast The Stakes, which you can find at MTV. And follow her on Twitter at Anna Marie Cox. And a reminder for all the parents out there who are sending your kids off to college: now would be the perfect time if you haven't already to turn them on to the Savage Lovecast, and you can give the Savage Lovecast as a gift. Just go to SavageLovecast.com and click on the box that says "Gift" and send your kid to school love Lovecast in their pocket. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast